Section two of the Fifth Queen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Fifth Queen, and How She Came to Court, by Ford Maddox Ford. Part one, Chapter two. The Lord Privy Seal was beneath a tall cresset in the stern of his barge, looking across the night and the winter river. They were rowing from Rochester to the palace at Greenwich, where the court was awaiting Anne of Cleves. The flare of the king's barge a quarter of a mile ahead moved in a glowing patch of lights and their reflections, as though it were some portent creeping in a blaze across the sky. There was nothing else visible in the world but the darkness, and a dusky tinge of red where a wave caught the flare of light further out. He stood invisible behind the lights of his cabin, and the thud of oars, the voluble noises of the water, and the crackling of the cresset overhead, had, too, the quality of impersonal and supernatural phenomena. His voice said harshly, "'It is very cold. Bring me my greatest cloak.' Throckmorton, the one of Cromwell's seven hundred spies who at that time was his most constant companion, was hidden in the deep shadow beside the cabin-door. His bearded and heavy form obscured the light for a moment as he hurried to fetch the cloak. But merely to be the Lord Cromwell's gown-bearer was in those days a thing you would run after, and an old man in a flat cap, the Chancellor of the Augmentations, who had been listening intently at the door, was already hurrying out with a heavy cloak of fur. Cromwell let it be hung about his shoulders. The Chancellor shivered and said, we should be within a quarter-hour of Greenwich." "'Get you in, if you be cold,' Cromwell answered. But the Chancellor was quivering with the desire to talk to his master. He had seen the heavy king rush stumbling down the stairs of the Cleves woman's lodgings at Rochester, and the sight had been for him terrible and prodigious. It was Cromwell who had made him Chancellor of the Augmentations, who had even invented the office to deal with the land taken from the abbeys and he was so much the creature of this Lord Privy Seal, that it seemed as if the earth was shivering all the while for the fall of this minister, and that he himself was within an inch of the ruin, execration, and death that would come for them all once Cromwell were down. Throckmorton, a giant man with an immense golden beard, issued again from the cabin, and the Privy Seal's voice came leisurely and cold. "'What said Lord Cassilis of this?' and the fellow Knighton. I saw them at the stairs." Privy Seal had such eyes that it was delicate work lying to him. But Throckmorton brought out heavily, "'Cassilis, that this Lady Anne should never be queen.' "'Aye, but she must,' the Chancellor bleated. He had been bribed by two of the Cleves lords to get them lands in Kent when the Queen should be in power. Cromwell's silence made Throckmorton continue against his will. "'Knighton, that the Queen's breath should turn the King's stomach against you. Dr. Miley, the Lutheran preacher, that by this evening's work the kingdom of God on earth was set trembling, the King having the nature of a lecher.' He tried to hold back. After all, it came into his mind, this man was nearly down. Any one of the men upon whom he now spied might come to be his master very soon. But Cromwell's voice said, "'And then?' And he made up his mind to implicate none but the Scotch lord, 
who was at once harmless and unliable to be harmed. "'Lord Cassilis,' he brought out, "'said again that your lordship's head should fall ere January goes out.' He seemed to feel the great man sneer through the darkness, and was coldly angry with himself for having invented no better lie. For if this invisible and threatening phantom that hid itself among these shadows outlasted January, he might yet outlast some of them. He wondered which of Cromwell's innumerable ill-wishers it might best serve him to serve. But for the Chancellor of the Augmentations, the heavy silence of calamity, like a waiting at a bedside for death to come, seemed to fall upon them. He imagined that the privy seal hid himself in that shadow in order to conceal a pale face and shaking knees. But Cromwell's voice came harsh and peremptory to Throckmorton. "'What men be abroad at this night season? Ask my helmsman.' Two torchlights far away to the right wavered shaking trails in the water that thus revealed showed agitated and chopped by small waves. The Chancellor's white beard shook with the cold, with fear of Cromwell, and with curiosity to know how the man looked and felt. He ventured at last in a faint and bleating voice. "'What did his lordship think of this matter? Surely the King should espouse this lady and the Lutheran cause.' Cromwell answered with inscrutable arrogance, "'Why, your cause is valuable, but this is a great matter. Get you in if you be cold." Throckmorton appeared noiselessly at his elbow, whilst the Chancellor was mumbling, "'God forbid I should be called Lutheran!' The torches, Throckmorton said, were those of fishers who caught eels off the mud with worms upon needles. "'Such night-work favours treason,' Cromwell muttered. "'Write in my notebook. The counsel to prohibit the fishing of eels by night. "'What a nose he hath for treasons!' the Chancellor whispered to Throckmorton, as they rustled together into the cabin. Throckmorton's face was gloomy and pensive. The privy seal had chosen none of his information for noting down. Assuredly the time was near for him to find another master. The barge swung round a reach and the lights of the Palace of Greenwich were like a flight of dim or bright squares in mid-air, far ahead. The King's barge was already illuminating the crenellated arch at the top of the river-steps. A burst of torches flared out to meet it and disappeared. The court was then at Greenwich, nearly all the lords, the bishops, and the several councils lying in the palace to await the coming of Anne of Cleves on the morrow. She had reached Rochester that evening after some day's delay at Calais, for the winter seas. The King had gone that night to inspect her, having been given to believe that she was soberly fair and of bountiful charms. His courteous visit had been in secret and in disguise. Therefore there were no torchmen in the gardens, and darkness lay between the river steps and the great central gateway but a bonfire, erected by the guards to warm themselves in the courtyard, as it leapt up or subsided before the wind, showed that tall tower pale and high or vanishing into the night, with its carved stone garlands, its stone men-at-arms, its lions, roses, leopards, and naked boys. The living houses ran away from the foot of the tower, till the wings coming towards the river vanished continually into shadows. They were low by comparison, 
gabled with false fronts over each set of rooms, and in the glass of their small paned windows the reflection of the fire gleamed capriciously from unexpected shadows. This palace was called Placentia by the king, because it was pleasant to live in. Cromwell mounted the steps with a slow gait and an arrogant figure. Under the river arch eight of his gentlemen waited upon him, and in the garden the torches of his men showed black yew-trees cut like peacocks, clipped hedges like walls with archways above the broad and tiled paths, and fountains that gleamed and trickled as if secretly in the heavy and bitter night. A corridor ran from under the great tower right round the palace. It was full of hurrying people and of grooms who stood in knots beside doorways. They flattened themselves against the walls before the Lord Privy Seal's procession of gentlemen in black with white staves, and the ceilings seemed to send down moulded and gilded stalactites to touch his head. The beef-eater before the door of the Lady Mary's lodgings spat upon the ground when he had passed. His hard glance travelled along the wall like a palpable ray, about the height of a man's head. It passed over faces and slipped back to the gilded wainscoting, tiring women upon whom it fell shivered, and the serving men felt their bowels turn within them. His round face was hard and alert, and his lips moved ceaselessly one upon the other. All those serving people wondered to see his head so high, for already it was known that the king had turned sick at the sight of his bedfellow that should be. And indeed, the palace was only awake at that late hour because of that astounding news, dignitaries lingering in each other's quarters to talk of it, whilst in the passages their waiting-men supplied gross commentaries. He entered his door. In the ante-room two men in his livery removed his outer furs deftly, so as not to hinder his walk. Before the fire of his large room a fair boy knelt to pull off his jewelled gloves, and Hansen, one of his secretaries, unclasped from his girdle the corded bag that held the privy seal. He laid it on a high stand between two tall candles of wax upon the long table. The boy went with the gloves and Hansen disappeared silently behind the dark tapestry in the further corner. Cromwell was meditating above a fragment of flaming wood that the fire had spat out far into the tiled forehearth. He pressed it with his foot gently towards the blaze of wood in the chimney. His plump hands were behind his back. His long upper lip ceaselessly caressed its fellow, moving as one line of a snake's coil glides above another. The January wind crept round the shadowy room behind the tapestry, and as it quivered stags seemed to leap over bushes, hounds to spring in pursuit, and to crowned Diana to move her arms, taking an arrow from a quiver behind her shoulder. The tall candles guarded the bag of the privy seal, they fluttered and made the gilded heads on the rafters have sudden grins on their faces, that represented kings with flowered crowns, queens with their hair combed back onto pillows and pages with scalloped hats. Cromwell stepped into an ombre, where there was a glass of wine, a manchet of bread, and a little salt. He began to eat, dipping pieces of bread into the golden salt-cellar. The face of a queen looked down just above his head, with her eyes wide open as if she were amazed, thrusting her head from a cloud. "'Why, I have outlived three queens,' he said to himself and his round face resignedly despised his world and his times. He had forgotten what anxiety felt like 
because the world was so peopled with blunderers and timid fools full of hatred. The marriage with Cleves was the death-blow to the power of the empire. With the Protestant princes armed behind his back, the imbecile called Charles would never dare to set his troops on board ship in Flanders to aid the continual rebellions, conspiracies, and risings in England. He had done it too often, and he had repented as often at the last moment. It was true that the marriage had thrown Charles into the arms of France. The French king and he were at that very minute supping together in Paris. They would be making treaties that were meant to be broken, and their statesmen were hatching plots that any scullion would reveal. Francis and his men were too mean, too silly, too despicable, and too easily bribed to hold to any union or to carry out any policy. He sipped his wine slowly. It was a little cold, so he set it down beside the fire. He wanted to go to bed, but the archbishop was coming to hear how Henry had received his queen and to pour out his fears. Fears! Because the king had been sick at the sight of the Cleves woman. He had this king very absolutely in his power. The grey, failing, but vindictive and obstinate mass known as Henry was afraid of his contempt, afraid really of a shrug of the shoulder or a small sniff. With the generosity of his wine and the warmth of his fire, his thoughts went very many years ahead. He imagined the king either married to or having repudiated the lady from Cleves, and then dead. Edward, the Seymour child, was his creature, and would be king or dead. Cleve's children would be his creations, too. Or, if he married the Lady Mary, he would still be next the throne. His mind rested luxuriously and tranquilly on that prospect. He would be perpetually beside the throne. There would be no distraction to maintain a foothold. He would be there by right. He would be able to give all his mind to the directing of this world that he despised for its baseness, its jealousies, its insane brawls, its aimless selfishness, and its blind furies. Then there should be no more war, as there should be no more revolts. There should be no more jealousies, for kingcraft, solid, austere, practical, and inspired, should keep down all the peoples, all the priests, and all the nobles of the world. Ah, he thought, there would be in France no power to shelter traitors like Brancetor. His eyes became softer in the contemplation of this utopia, and he moved his upper lip more slowly. Now the archbishop was there. Pale, worn with fears and agitation, he came to say that the king had called to him Bishop Gardiner and the more Catholic lords of the council. Cranmer's own spy Lasselle had made this new report. His white sleeves made a shivering sound, the fur that fell round his neck was displaced on one shoulder. His large mouth was open with panic, his lips trembled, and his good-natured and narrow eyes seemed about to drop tears. "'Your Grace knoweth well what passed to-night at Rochester,' Cromwell said. He clapped his hands for a man to snuff the candles. "'You have the common report.' "'Ah, is it even true?' The archbishop felt a last hope die, and he choked in his throat. Cromwell watched the man at the candles, and said, "'Your grace hath a new riding mule. I pray it may cease to affright you.' "'Why?' he said, as the man went. "'The King's Highness went even to Rochester, disguised, since it was his good pleasure, as a French lord. You have seen the lady. 
So his highness was seized with a make of palsy. He cursed to his barge. I know no more than that. And now they sit in the council. It seems, Cromwell said. Oh, dear God, have mercy! The archbishop's thin hands wavered before the crucifix on his breast, and made the sign of the cross. The very faces of his enemies seemed visible to him. He saw Gardiner of Winchester, with his snake's eyes under the flat cap, and the Duke of Norfolk with his eyes malignant in a long yellow face. He had a vision of the King, a huge red lump beneath the high dais at the head of the council-table, his face suffused with blood, his cheeks quivering. He wrung his hands and wondered if at Smithfield the Lutherans would pray for him, or curse him for having been lukewarm. "'Why, goodman gossip?' Cromwell said compassionately. "'We have been nearer death ten times.' He uttered his inmost thoughts out of pity. All this he had awaited. The King's Highness, by the report of his painters, his ambassadors, his spies, they were all in the pay of Cromwell, had awaited a lady of modest demeanour, a coy habit, and a great and placid fairness. I had warned the Ormains at Rochester to attire her against our coming, but she slobbered with ecstasy and slipped sideways, aiming at a courtesy. Therefore the King was hot with new anger and disgust. "'You and I are undone!' Cranmer was passive with despair. "'He is very seldom an hour of one mind,' Cromwell answered. "'Unless in that hour those you wot of shall work upon him, it will go well with us.' "'They shall, they shall!' "'I wait to see.' There seemed to Cranmer something horrible in this impassivity. He wished his leader to go to the King and he had a frantic moment of imagining himself running to a great distance, hiding his head in darkness. Cromwell's lips went up in scorn. "'Do you imagine the yellow duke speaking his mind to the king? He is too craven.' A heavy silence fell between them. The fire rustled, the candles again needed snuffing. "'Best get to bed,' Cromwell said at last. "'Could I sleep?' Cranmer had the irritation of extreme fear. His master seemed to him to have no bowels. But the waiting told at last upon Cromwell himself. "'I could sleep, and you would let me,' he said sharply. "'I tell you, the King shall be another man in the morning.' "'Ay, but now, but now!' He imagined the pens in that distant room creaking over the paper with their committals, and he wished to upbraid Cromwell. It was his policy of combining with Lutherans that had brought them to this. Heavy thundering came on the outer door. "'The King comes!' Cromwell cried victoriously. He went swiftly from the room. The archbishop closed his eyes and suddenly remembered the time when he had been a child. Privy Seal had an angry and contemptuous frown at his return. "'They have kept him from me.' He threw a little scroll onto the table. Its white silence made Cranmer shudder. It seemed to have something of the heavy threatening of the King's self. "'We may go to bed,' Cromwell said. "'They have devised their shift.' "'You say?' "'They have temporized. They have delayed. I know them.' He quoted contemptuously from the letter. 
We would have you send presently to ask of the Almain lords with the Lady Anne the papers concerning her pre-contract to the Duke of Lorraine." Cranmer was upon the point of going away in the joy of this respite. But his desire to talk delayed him, and he began to talk about the canon-law and pre-contracts of marriage. It was a very valid cause of nullity all the doctors held. "'Think you I have not made very certain the pre-contract was nullified? This is no shift!' And Cromwell spoke wearily and angrily. "'Goodman Archbishop, dry your tears. To-night the King is hot with disgust, but I tell you he will not cast away his kingdom upon whether her teeth be white or yellow. This is no woman's man.' Cranmer came nearer the fire and stretched out his lean hands. He hath dandled of late with the Lady Cassilis. Well, he hath been pleasant with her. Cranmer urged, A full-blown man towards his failing years is more prone to women than before. Then he may go a-wenching. He began to speak with a weary passion. To cast away the Lady Anne now were a madness. It would be to stand without a friend before all nations armed to their downfall. This king would do no jot to lose a patch upon his sovereignty. Cranmer sought to speak. His highness is always hot o' nights, Cromwell kept on. It is in his nature so to be. But by morning the German princess shall make him afraid again, and the Lutherans of this goodly realm. Those mad swine are friends. He will burn seven of them on to-morrow sennight, Cranmer said. Nay, I shall enlarge them on Wednesday." Cranmer shivered. They grow very insolent. I am afraid. Cromwell answered with a studied nonchalance. My bones tell me it shall be an eastward wind. It shall not rain on the new Queen's bridles. He drank up his warm wine, and brushed the crumbs from the furs round his neck. "'You are a very certain man,' the Archbishop said. Going along the now dark corridors, he was afraid that some ruffling boy might spring upon him from the shadows. Norfolk, as the Earl Marshal, had placed his lodgings in a very distant part of the palace, to give him long journeys, that telling upon his asthma made him arrive breathless and convulsed at the King's rooms when he was sent for. End of section 2